I've been pastoring this church and this beloved congregation on the basis of two assumptions. The one is that you want to go beyond superficial beliefs. And the other is that you hope that you are loved rather than just accepted. I want to explain both of those things just a little bit more to you as we embark upon uh, the journey today in God's Word and throughout this series. I have always been convinced and will always be convinced that you come to Calvary Baptist Church, that you gather here, that we gather here uh, to worship the Lord because you do want to go beyond superficial beliefs. That in your heart of hearts, you realize that the seriousness of life cannot be faced by superficial beliefs alone. That our fallen world cannot be stared down by less than passionate commitment to Christ. That the evil around us and the wickedness around us and the serious illnesses that befall us and come calling, superficiality cannot handle. That you can never know victory in your inner life if it's divided in its loyalty. And so, I pastor you with that belief as I study God's word and come before you all the time. I seek to bring you past any sense that superficial belief alone is okay. It is not. I read an article from one of our, one of our young men here who found and... It was um, challenging the whole notion of love versus acceptance. I found it fascinating and important. And I thought to myself that um, the church of Jesus Christ, in the church of Jesus Christ, we should consider it far more important. In fact, we should consider it of utmost importance that we are loved rather than accepted. And there's a huge difference. Love tells you the truth. When you ask someone to just accept me, just accept me, you are really saying to them, I want you to take me just as I am. I don't necessarily want you to tell me that how I am needs any correction, needs any change of direction, needs anything. I just want you to accept me. And while there may be a place for that emotionally... It's not a place of strength in our lives. See, the simple truth is that love will tell you the truth while acceptance usually has to avoid the truth. And if we as God's people really believed, Romans 6.23 for instance, that the wages of sin is death, would there not be an urgency in our lives if we loved one another? That we would do whatever it takes, that we would run after you, that we would, we would press you urgently to say, you need to run from that sin because the wages of sin is death and I love you too much to leave you in that journey. That's who our God is. Our God loves us too much to just accept us. He loves us with an everlasting love. And so, those who love you 
will tell you not only to leave your sin, but they will tell you to leave your idols. If people love you, they will tell you to leave your idols behind. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he came to the Corinthian church, which he loved so much, he said to them, he commanded them from the, the, uh, from the um, sense that uh, the Spirit of God gave to him, flee idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Flee idolatry, run from it, do whatever you have to do to turn your back on idolatry and run as fast as you can away from it and never look back. We found out, uh, we discovered in the text of scriptures that we looked at last week that that's an Old Testament command as well. In fact, you remember last week in Judges chapter 2, verse 2, the Lord God said to his people, tear down their altars. Now, we might not have fully understood what he was telling them about altars. Altars are, are structures, are platforms, are places where people lay sacrifices to deities or make sacrifices to deities. And so the Lord God was saying to Israel, the people of God, the people who he loved, whatever you do, he said, tear down their, tear down their, their altars. Altars whereby sacrifices and offerings are made to other deities. He was literally saying to them, run away from idolatry. Do whatever you can to flee from it. Never look back. It's the same message. Most of us know the, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Um, or maybe it would be better entitled the Disciples' Prayer. Because the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And remember there's one section in there where we ask the Lord in prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know that phrase? Most of us know that. We know that one. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When God said to his people in Judges chapter 2, tear down their altars, he was answering that prayer. That's how that prayer is answered. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And he said, okay. Then tear down their altars because their altars, their sacrifices, their offerings to other gods will steal your heart away from me. You'll be tempted to follow their ways and you will be led into evil and wickedness. And so it is in our context today. To pray that prayer to God is to ask him to strengthen us with resolve to turn from our idols that will tempt us to evil, that we might be single-hearted, have undivided hearts for the living God. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 2 as we continue this journey? Eradicate idols. You can never live a life of worshiping Christ if you have built places of prominence for other gods. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, I don't have, I haven't built any platform. I haven't built any surface place in my house where, where I lay out offerings and sacrifices to other gods. If you have anything in your life, 
that is of prominence, that takes the rightful place of God, it is an altar to another deity. We're going to look a little more clearly, at, or a little more carefully at that and, and try to get some clarity. But for the sake of your spiritual health, for the sake of the health of your family, for the sake of your church community, for the sake of your personal future power and strength in life, I am urging you to take seriously the message that is before us in this matter of idolatry. It's ruining our lives. We need to get rid of idols or reposition things that have become in places before God. So what is an idol? Well, Tim Keller has given as good a definition as any, a pastor of a church in New York City. He, he states it this way, anything you add to God as a requirement for being happy is an idol. An idol is anything you add to Jesus as a requirement for a meaningful life. Anything created or from creation that takes the place of God and the rightful place of God and what God is supposed to provide in your life is and can become an idol in your life. Think of it this way. What in your life... Um, gets most of your sacrificial attention, gets most of your care and concern. If removed, you would be in great trouble, in great distress. Your life would unravel. What is it, what things, what created things, what things of creation provide you confidence or provide you security outside of God or in addition to God? What makes you happy? What makes you sad? Idols will lord it over your emotions, but are powerless to help you. Idols can't give you life. Idols can't forgive you of your sins. Idols can't give you eternal life. Idols can't make you strong in spirit. So what or who are you most responding to in determining how and in what way you are living and feeling? There's a statistic that I'm going to pull back onto the table this morning that's just been driving me crazy. I don't want it to be true. I shared it with you a couple of weeks ago. Remember I mentioned a statistic by George Barna who does studies across the U.S. primarily um, and, and seeks to find out the spiritual climate of North America or particularly America. And you'll remember that the stat that I pulled out a couple of weeks ago had to do with um, people, Christians, who classify themselves as deeply spiritual. Now, if we were to do a... Um, a sort of poll here this morning, um, a public poll, and say how many in here who consider yourself Christian consider yourself also a deeply spiritual Christian. Now, there'd be, a, there'd be a momentary decision to make. Now, do I put my hand up because of the pressure of the room and the expectation that we should be deeply spiritual? 
Or do I keep my hand down because people might look at me and say, who do I think I am? Or who do you think you are calling yourself deeply spiritual? I don't know which it would be, but this study was done privately. So there was no pressure from uh, an audience like this. And the statistic goes this way. 85% of Christians, born-again Christians, who consider themselves... Let me phrase it correctly. 85% of people who consider themselves deeply spiritual Christians do not consider God the priority of their life. Now, you know why I can't stand that statistic. It just drives me crazy. I just can't believe it. But in a moment of raw honesty... In a poll that was taken, sadly, 85%, so that means only 15% of Christians who consider themselves deeply spiritual consider God the priority of their lives. Now that's the U.S. We're so much further advanced in Christ here in the great white north. If that's true, and to be honest, I feel sadly that it might be. From my years of pastoring and ministry, that we really, really don't have God as priority of our lives. That Christ really isn't at the center as we've been singing. That we aren't really seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I mean, if we were to take that whole as true of our church, that would mean that maybe only 15 to 20 people here would declare that Jesus Christ is a priority of my life. So what if that is true? What do we need to know about these things? In the word of God this morning, and before we, uh, before we pop any, any further, let, let's just pause for prayer. God, I just pray this morning that you would build into our lives something far more robust today, spiritually. That this might be a, a real watershed moment of sorts for our beloved congregation, for all of us. That, Lord God, we, you love us. I know you love us. And I know you want for us to have what you have for us. And Lord, I know you want so much more for us than we are uh, receiving and welcoming into our lives. And so, Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would settle on us this morning with such a profound sense of conviction. Oh, God, I, we have been inviting you here with us all morning, Lord. Come, come be with us. Don't leave us alone. Don't turn your back on us, oh God. We have been sinful and we have turned our back on you but lord god don't turn your back on us rather father turn full face to us this morning and may the blessing of your spirit's presence rest upon us with power and strength that we might receive and welcome what you have today and that you might do a powerful work in our lives i pray in jesus name amen 
So the historic practice, sadly, of God's people, and why I say this may be true, is found in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 41. I'll just read it to you. You've heard it before. It says this, even while these people, meaning the people of God, were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. It has been a historic pattern of the people of God to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, embrace God, and also live their lives serving idols. It can stop with this generation. It must stop here. It must stop at Calvary Baptist Church. I want you to notice in the text that as we move through the text, um, verse 6, it says, After Joshua... This is Judges chapter 2. Had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. And the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Have you seen great things that God has done for you? We've witnessed some great things that God has done for us this morning. We've witnessed some great things that God has done in people's hearts this morning in six baptisms as they gave testimony of what God has done for them. God has done great things for us, hasn't he? You're fired up with the great things that God has done. God has done really great things for us, and we know that. And and so while we celebrate and think about the great things that God has done for us, things go very well in your heart. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Heresh, in the hill country of Ephraim, North of Mount Ge'esh. After that, listen. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Let me stop here for a second and let me say why we are passionate about about children's ministries here at Calvary Baptist Church. It is the, the role and the responsibility of each generation to pass down the great things that God has done for us and to celebrate the great things and to, to live a life of, of celebrating how good God has been to us. It, it, it absolutely is necessary to see those young children go into the baptismal tank and testify to the great things that God has done for them to, to, to rescue them out of sin and slavery to themselves and Put them in the marvelous kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and to testify that that the next generation coming along is praising the great things that God has done for them. That's a great praise moment for us, is it not? That's a passion of our hearts. And you can see that in one generation, if a generation fails to pass down the great things that God has done for us, that next generation will stop trusting in God, they'll stop believing in God, and they will turn from him and do evil and wickedness. One generation. And what do they do when they serve, when they turn to evil? They serve the Baals. Idols. I want to ask you this morning, because if you keep reading in the text, it says they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. Note that. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, O God. And they provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. 
It says three, t- four, three, four, five times about other gods or Baal or Ashtoreth or Baal. It keeps going back. Let, let me ask you a question. Why did the ancients chase after Baal and the Ashtoreths? Say, I don't know, because I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know what Baal is and Ashtoreth. What, what in the world is that? Well, let me just uh, give you a quick history lesson on, on uh, ancient Canaanite uh, pagan gods. The, the Baal, Baal was their main god, the main god of the Canaanites, the main god of the pagan people. And um, Baal was the god of, of storm and rain, and, uh, and he was depicted most often in terms of I- idol structures as a bull. And uh, he, um, Baal was... Um, was uh, along with his cohort, Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was uh, one of three female deities who uh, was his counterpart. And so you'll see in, in the Bible, you'll read where they uh, erected Ashtoreth poles and things of that nature. And um, Ashtoreth was the, the female, she was the, the god of sex, goddess of sex and war. Together they formed a formidable force uh, of the, the system of worship of the Canaanite, pagan Canaanite system. Um, the idea was, of course, these two gods provided the land, made the land fertile. And so you can imagine how disgusting this was to the living God of heaven and earth who made everything. Because God, the living God, was always in competition with the Baals and the Ashtoreths for fertility, for instance. And throughout the scripture, that's why we read so many Old Testament highlights of the idea that God is the God of fertility. God is the God. Our God is the God of, of provision and providing. Our God is the one who takes barren land and makes it fertile. Our God is the one who takes barren women and enables them to bear children. That's what the scriptures point out to us. Only Jehovah God can do this. It's a, it's a, a polemic against the, the Canaanite gods. And they were turning to these gods of, which were, uh, by the way, uh, gods of sensuality because in their system of worship, it was believed that, that the Canaanite people, uh, their worship services, their celebration services were, were orgiastic drunks whereby they would perform sexual exploits in order to stir up Baal and Ashtoreth to have a sexual encounter so that the land would bring forth crops and so that their women would bring forth children. God, on the other hand, is saying, call out to me in prayer. Praise me, lift up my name, worship me, call to me in prayer. But pornography was a greater attraction than a prayer meeting every time. And so you have this heinous system of the culture, the ancient culture. Now, it seems to me as we look at this and um, suggest, well, we have no relationship to Baal or Ashtoreth. So what's the application here? If you take a trip to the... um, financial district of New York City, you will find a large statue of a bull. 
the bull market, we always want our stocks to be bullish. It seems to me beyond coincidental that the image of provision and market success providing for the people, market fertility is a bull in New York City. It seems to me that um, one of the idols that has grabbed hold of the North American man's heart is the idol of pornography. It's destroying young men's lives and increasingly young women. It, It even came to my attention that there are some Christian couples who think that they can stimulate their sexual relationship by participating in the viewing of pornography. Beloved, the viewing of pornography is a Canaanite pagan worship service. That's, in fact, the context with which the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians said, flee idolatry. In that very place, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says there's no temptation that is brought to, to you that, that uh, God will not enable you. It's not common to man and God will not enable you to escape. And then right after that, Paul says, flee idolatry, run away from idolatry. And then he says, do you think that you can dine at the table of pagans, demons, and also dine at the table of the Lord? Ramon, you said it right in the baptismal tank this morning. Are we supposed to arouse the jealousy of our God and then expect that he will bless our lives? Paul said, flee idolatry. So why do the ancients follow the Baals and the Ashtoreths? Why do the moderns follow the Baals and the Ashtoreths? Why are we battling this so hard in the church? Why is Celebrate Recovery buried with men struggling with pornography and the others who won't come forward and women? Because pornography is more attractive than a prayer meeting. Well... What are the major categories of idols that attach themselves to the Christian life? This is somewhat arbitrary. I'm, I'm simply attempting to, to catalog for you, give you some help on, on taking this from the exaggerated ashtra pole that, that, has, uh, that exaggerates the physical features of a woman who, who's called, by the way, in other places in the scripture, the queen of heaven, Read Jeremiah 44, you'll see that God's people are telling the prophet, we're, we're not giving up the queen of heaven. She provides things for us. So what major categories have crept into our modern life? Category one would be something like, where does your joy reside? Is it, is it in your recreation, in your entertainment, in your pornography, in your employment? 
Is it lifestyle, fertility, mind-altering substances, provision, sexuality, playtime, playthings, addictions, dependencies? What are these things that you have to have to make your life meaningful in addition to Jesus Christ, to make you happy, to feel alive? What are these things? Or category, category two, what gives you significance and security in your life? Possessions, position, how much hold do your possessions and your position have in your life? How, how, how much, how much uh, do you rely on your possessions and your position for well-being? In addition to the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's to mean in your life. On what altar do you put your money? The numbers spent on pornography, the numbers spent on gambling, the numbers spent on all kinds of other things are off the scale. The numbers available for the work of God is thin. Let me tell you what I tell your kids who you entrust to me just before they get married. When we have some pre-marriage counseling, one of the sessions I have with them is how to make sure that money is not an idol in their lives. And I highly recommend this not just to your kids, but to you. I say to them, when you get your paycheck, as you become a husband and wife and the paycheck comes in, I want you to, the first thing I want you to do is take 10% and set it aside for the Lord. And then I want you to take the next 10% and I want you to set it aside for yourself to save. And then I want you to take the 80% that's left over and I want you to live on that. I want you to decide what kind of house you can have, what kind of car you can have, what kind of clothes you can have, what kind of food you can eat on the basis of the 80% that's left over. And if you live like that, God will bless you. No one will ever have to look after you. You'll always have enough. And you will know that you're living within the range of God's blessing. So each one who has me for a pre-marriage counselor gets that little sermon. And now you have it too. What altar does our money occupy? Take an inventory of your life, your time, your talents, your treasure. What's getting first place? The Lord? There's another category three, your status, your meaning in life, love, importance, feeling and being loved. Feel, Feel as if you're being loved. Who or what gives this to you? Is it people, self, yes, or the Lord? There's nothing wrong with people in our lives. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. We're talking about a position here, a positioning, a prioritizing here. Is it friends, family, children, your preferences? Self is one of the biggest idols in our lives. Okay. Here's what's important this morning. We need to quickly look and run down how in the world does idolatry happen in our lives. Because I want to make this abundantly clear that when we start out as believers, there's a definition, a description of a Christian that the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And he says, oh... I'm so glad to hear that you Thessalonians have become followers of the living Christ. And he says, and here's how he describes them. 
You have turned from your idols to serve the living Christ. You've done an about face. You used to serve idols, but now you have thrown your entire life towards serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he defined a believer. That's how he described someone who'd come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You used to do this. You've turned. So I'm going to assume this morning that each one of you claims to know the Lord Jesus Christ at one point in your life, turned from your idols, and turned to the living Christ. So what happens? It's not a one-time event. We have to continue to be vigilant in our lives, to continue turning. Lord God, please lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Lord, continue to help me to turn my life toward you first and foremost. Help me not to be caught up with the things around me because they're, they're all around. We're asked to live among the people of idols. So what happened to them then? I want you to notice in verse 10, it says here that a generation grew up and didn't know the Lord. They, they, they served the bills. They forsook the Lord. They forsook the Lord because they forgot the Lord. The first thing is, that happens is you loosen your grip on God. You make room for idols. Now you say, what are you talking about? I'm telling you, remember we talked earlier in Judges where it said hold, where the the command was hold fast to God, hold tight to God. And I gave this illustration of a father who holds tight to his daughter and and loves her and says, no one else is getting here. There's no other room. The picture here is that I hold so tight to God. I love God with all of my heart. There's no room for anything else. But if we loosen our grip on God, and there are a variety of ways that can happen. We make room for idols. Now, it says here they forsook because they forgot. Idols will either crowd out God or God will crowd out idols in your life. Now, possibly in this case, it's because they were trying to live on secondhand salvation experience. It's a generation that grew up that did not know the Lord. There is a great danger in all of our lives, particularly if we have a heritage or a background of Christianity that we think we can coast on the culture of our parents or our grandparents. Well, I've been a multi-generational member of Calvary Baptist Church, and that's just who we are. We're a Christian family. We just, listen, those children were giving first-hand personal testimonies of their own faith in Christ. Second-hand salvation experiences won't cut it when evil comes your way, when idols come pressing upon you. It must be your personal conviction that you yourself have experienced the life-changing work of Christ, the salvation of Christ. Perhaps uh, it's just a sinful thought that you allow to sort of reside in your mind and in your heart that God alone isn't cutting it. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's why Eve got into so much trouble. She allowed a thought to enter her mind when God said, I don't want you to have the idol of that tree. And she said in her heart, In her mind, God is not enough. God and all that he has given me is not enough. I need that tree as well. Or maybe it's just we, get, we just slack off and stop holding tight to the Lord. We stop remembering. We stop rehearsing. We stop celebrating what the Lord has done for you. You don't have a testimony. You don't have a present testimony of what God is doing in your life. Jesus Christ is no longer the center of my life. Listen, it starts insidiously. It starts with maybe you start missing, missing your devotions. You're not really uh, reading the word of God. You're not really praying to him. And you start missing them more and more, uh, more often and more often. You stop 
you start missing church. You start, stop coming to celebration where we remember the great things that God has done for us. You miss one Sunday, and that's okay. You miss two Sundays, and it starts to get easy because you miss three Sundays. And you know what? Pretty soon, six Sundays seems even better. Let's miss six Sundays. Because after all, today's a really nice sunny day. Wouldn't it be better to be out golfing today? I wonder how many people from Calvary are out in the golf course today. Yes, it's a nice day to go golfing, but it's a more important day to be in here celebrating the greatness of God. Or you will forget him. You won't remember God in the golf course. That's how it happens. You loosen your grip on God. Pretty soon wickedness comes in. And then, of course, you replace the displaced God with your new preferred gods. It says they followed and worshipped. You will always worship what you follow. They followed the, the gods that everybody else was serving. And every, everything around us, everything's pressing upon us. You are constantly, day in and day out, being offered a, a buffet of idolatry. It's everywhere. It's at your workplace. It's, on your na- it's in your neighborhood. It's on the television. It's in every marketing, advertising thing. It's, it's all over the place. You are being offered an iPhone 6. You got to have an iPhone 6. Have you got an iPhone 6? Somebody did have an iPhone 6 in the first service. And I said to them, I hope you put a fat check on the offering plate. It's okay to have an iPhone 6. As long as God and his work isn't getting bumped out of the way. First place. Because it says, do you notice what it says? They started following, verse 12, and then they worshipped various gods. That's what happens. We will worship what we follow And worship isn't just music, what we were doing this morning. It's when you bring your life into alignment to that thing that is most important to you. That's what worship is. Worshiping Jesus Christ is bringing all of our life and all of our thinking and all of our decision-making into alignment with Jesus Christ. That's what living sacrifice, that's what worship is. They followed and worshiped and started bringing their life into alignment to the gods that they preferred. And we can do that as well. And then it says in the text, in his anger, the Lord, the, against Israel, verse 14, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies around them, and they were no longer able to resist. Thirdly, you will lose any resistance to the enemy. You will wonder what happened. The idols will steal your heart, and the enemy will take your life into captivity, and you'll wonder, what happened? How did this, how did I get so far away from God? I don't, I can't believe how far I, I, and I can't believe at one time I could say no to that stuff easy. There was no problem in my life. And all of a sudden, the the simplest wickedness, the simplest sinful stuff is is appealing to me and it's drawing me and I, I can't any longer turn my life away from it. What happened to me? I'll tell you what happened to you. The living God said, if you want to have other gods, then trust them. I'm not helping you anymore. You want them? You help them. You ask them to forgive you. You ask them to provide for you. You ask them to take care of you when when you're trying to get away from wickedness. You ask them to help you when you get a bad report from the doctor. You ask your idols to help you. Let me ask you, can a new iPhone take care of a very, very bad illness? Or provide for your family? I'm not, uh, Apple's going to be mad at me. I'm not, I'm not like upset about iPhones. I have one. And the gospel life goes out of us. 
the gospel life of mercy and grace and compassion, forgiveness and loyalty and fellowship, the way we used to live with each other goes out of us and it turns ugly. The Apostle Paul said, who stole your heart? In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, who stole your heart? What does light have to do with darkness? What does Christ have to do with Belial? And he goes on and on and sets the contrasting gods. And the way he knew that they were in trouble, their hearts were hard toward him. We chase after all of these gods and then suddenly when they don't produce for us, we're angry at God. Why have you forsaken me? Why did you leave me? And we're angry at God's leaders who represent him. Our hearts close to them. But then it says in the text, verse 18, that the Lord had compassion on them and noticed that they were oppressed and afflicted. He noticed, he wants us back. By repentance, we can, co- we can come back to the Lord. He will always be there for our rescue. He wants you back. He wants all of you. And not only that, when you repent, he will give you judges. He will give you teachers. He will give you reformers in your life who will tell you the truth. Because they love you. And if you listen to them, if you listen to God's word, he will rescue you. So what is it, Calvary? Only Christ can save and sanctify you. If you can't turn to the Lord, it's because you don't belong to him, but you can. He will welcome you today. If you won't turn from your idols, you're living rebelliously and very, very dangerously. If you will... God will show himself strong on your behalf. So, beloved, run away from idols. Christ alone must be the center of your life. Our Father and our God, I pray this morning as we, as we allow all of this to just settle into our hearts, I pray, Father, that we would not any longer accept idols and other gods in our life. I pray, Father, that this day we would do business with you. That as you look at our oppression and our groaning and our trouble and our struggles because we have sought after other gods, that you would hear from hearts that are repenting. Oh, God, we're turning to you. We want to turn back to you. We know you want us back, and we want to be back, Lord, that we might go forward with the great blessing of the Lord today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this uh, moment of uh, quietness and honesty before God, let's uh, bow our heads for final prayer. And I I just want to mention to you this morning that... um, This song uh, from our lips puts it on the line for us. And um, while uh, there's great, obviously, authenticity and power to making a commitment in our hearts before the Lord, there is something profoundly challenging and life-changing about making some sort of public gesture that God has been speaking to your heart. And and so this morning... um, if God has laid on your heart, has convicted you of 
something that's in the way of Christ being the very center, very first place in your life. Um, that uh, we're looking for a real action plan here in our lives, that we've been looking for, to other things for happiness or a sense of happiness and well-being, or perhaps, perhaps you've been needing some sort of supplements in addition to God to help you win the battles of life. These are, these are idols. Maybe God's convicted your heart this morning. As we close in prayer, would you, would you just, nobody's looking around anywhere. This is a private moment, yet a moment with me and the Lord, and, and particularly for you, for your sake. If God has convicted your heart of something this morning that you're going to do business with God's strength, would you just slip your hand up wherever you are? God's convicted you of something that needs to de- you need to deal with. Thank you. Our Father, uh, you have, you see our hearts, but you've seen something in our hands this morning. You've heard something from our lips. And God, we don't need idols in our lives. They are ruining our lives. They're wrecking things. This is a serious, serious matter. So Father, by your grace, through your power alone, Would you connect with our commitment to tear down altars, offerings and sacrifices to other gods, I pray, Lord, that you might help us as a congregation to flee idolatry, that the fresh wind of God's blessing could blow into this place and change hearts and lives and neighborhoods and regions and countries. Go, God, for your glory's sake, I pray.